All right, if you'd open your Bible to Gospel of John chapter 1, we're going to um, look at an interesting aspect of the advent of Christ in John chapter 1, and uh, for the next couple of weeks during this season of Christmas, uh, we're, we'll be in the opening uh, chapters of John as we look at a little bit of a different perspective on the uh, story that uh, we find in the Gospels about Christ's arrival, his coming. So turn there with me, John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 19 through 28 today. And the Bible says there, now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now this John that uh, we're talking about is John the Baptist, I think will be plain. But this, the writer John is John the son of Zebedee, but here we're talking about John the um, John the Baptist. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, excuse me, that's the, that now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, gospel for the power that we see in this historical narrative of how you came to reveal yourself in first century among uh, people. And God, you began there to uh, help us understand how we might be recovered and how we might uh, come to you and be ransomed and rescued. And we pray today as we think about these uh, narratives, God, that you'll just affirm your truth in our own hearts and open us up, God, by your spirit of truth. And we pray for your help and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we think about the uh, narrative of Christmas, the word Advent is a word that means arrival. You know, there are two Advents in Scripture. There's this Advent, the coming of Christ in the first century in the Bible teaches also that there's a second advent, the coming of Christ, where he brings us our uh, hope and brings us into glory and culminates history. But at this advent, it's okay to not only think about it pertaining to the birth narrative, but also the life of Christ. And Really what we saw last week in the Gospel of John is not just a, not a traditional birth narrative anyway. What, what we see is he describes Jesus as the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we... What we saw there was Jesus described as being pre-existent and eternal. That's the word, the one who uh, God existed from eternity, always with the desire once there was a creation and there were human beings to make himself known, to reveal himself to us. And so Jesus there we see as... Uh, being from eternity. That's the way Micah chapter 5 verse 2 describes Jesus in one of the prophecies about Messiah. It says, his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That's such a fascinating phrase, from everlasting. To be from everlasting is a mind-blowing assertion about your identity. It, there's no beginning to where Christ is, and so that's how John introduces him to us in his gospel that he's eons old. If you look up eons, it means indefinite and very a very long period of time. And it's not even an accurate uh, explanation. To say eons old 
It just means in our imagination, there is not a place that you go back to when God didn't have an existence and Christ is there, a, a part of the divine nature. In the scripture, sometimes it's described as the Godhead. And we said last week in introducing these Advent messages that God's personality was plural. In the very first, you see that when God describes himself and he says, let us make man in our image. There's that uh, suggestion very early on that God's personality is very unique. And so Jesus is described as divine God who came to earth, begotten but not made. That's how the old creeds put it. Begotten but not made. He's begotten in the sense that he enters into human history in the first century through a family, Mary and Joseph. In the traditional narrative about Christmas, some of the songs that we sing and what the scripture shows us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are that he, he is begotten, that, but it doesn't mean that he began there. His story goes back indefinitely because he is eternal God. But he is begotten in the sense that he enters into the womb of a virgin and is born, gestates, is born nine months later and delivered and lived in this poor family in the first century like we saw previously. An interesting part of the narrative about the coming of Christ is when you read the other Gospels, there is this uh, description of the family of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He is born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias was a priest, and Zacharias, it was his time to offer incense for prayer and we remember the encounters an angel there who tells him you're going to give birth to a son and they're elderly people and I don't know how they receive that news I know if somebody came to me now and said hey you're about to have a baby I would definitely out my mind would be blown for a bunch of reasons but for one thing I don't want to be an 80 year old picking up my kid at school not necessarily so I don't know how this news registered with them well, we do know they were they were joyful, but at first Zacharias was like, "No way," <laughs> and the angel was like, "Way, yeah, it's going to happen." And and because of his unbelief, we remember that he was he wasn't able to speak until the baby is born. They bring him at one point. They're like, "What are we going to name this baby?" And they bring him a tablet, and he writes down John. And they were like, well, nobody in your family's named that. But he had been told by the angel that's this baby's name. And we know that baby is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is what we we call him. But his story is intertwined with Jesus' story because the Bible says that in the prophets, in the minor prophets, in the uh, book of Malachi, there's a forerunner. The forerunner is the one who makes straight the pathway of the Lord who announces the arrival of Messiah. So the forerunner comes first, and he is. He's before uh, Jesus. He's born before him several months. And it's interesting, John the Baptist, who is, you know, kind of a feature of this passage in the sense that he points us to Jesus. That's his place here. But he's an interesting character. We talked about him a little last week, that he was a Nazarite, which meant that he didn't drink strong drink, meant that he didn't cut his hair. He followed all of the uh, the, the descriptions that were given about Nazarites. He's an ascetic, ascetic. It means intentionally subjected himself to hardship and self-denial. There was an aspect of the personality and calling that he had, that he was, uh, he lived in the wilderness, as we'll talk about, in the wild. That's where he lived. He dressed in camel hair, which sounds excessively itchy to me, but that's how he wore a a clothing made of camel hair. He ate locusts, which does not sound appealing either. And wild honey, and wild honey probably is okay, but the rest of it sounds, 
you know, pretty rough. He is an ascetic. That's the description that you would give of him. And it's interesting that he's, um, while he's out there in the wilderness, he is a sort of rabbi. He has followers. We know that because at a point the disciples of Jesus say, uh, teach us to pray as John also taught his followers to pray. So there was a, a following around John, and he was baptizing people. And when you read about baptism, you don't really find it as an Old Testament idea. When you read the Old Testament, you don't see people baptizing. So it's a really kind of an innovation that God brings into the experience of worshipers that is a portrayal of the gospel. When we think about what baptism is, you know, we do it here by filling up this pool over here. And you lower people into the water and you raise them up. And the liturgy that I was taught to say is buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. It portrays the gospel, the fact that Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead. And that what we do is identify with him publicly by being baptized in obedience to him so that there's a always a portrayal of the gospel. It's a drama that God built into the experience of public worship for human beings that uh, is uh, as much a miracle as other aspects of, of the gospel in the sense that it represents for us a cleansing and forgiveness. Well, in the first century when John is baptizing, it's an innovation. It's new. He's baptizing these believers uh, who are turning away from something. That's the idea in baptism, is that there is an acknowledgement of the need to be cleansed. And they, these are already religious people. The people that were being baptized this prior, uh, being baptized prior to this were Jewish or Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So the only people that would have been baptized prior to John's baptism, according to what we read in uh, church history, were, were Gentiles who said, we want to become part of the Jewish worship. We want, we want to be recognized as in, being born into, this, uh, into Judaism. So when, what John is doing that's uniquely different is he's baptizing Jews. Before it was Gentiles who said we want to become worshipers of Jehovah, the one true God. But now when John comes along, he's baptizing Jews who recognize in their life something deficient. Something's wrong and they're, and they're coming for cleansing and they're coming for forgiveness. And John is out here beyond the Jordan baptizing and it's has the feel of Brush Arbor Revivals. I don't know if anybody, none of us remember Brush Arbor Revivals. In church history, they used to have these uh, revival meetings that were intense, and uh, there was a lot of spitting during the preaching probably, and stuff like that. It was an intense, spirit. there was spiritual fervor. In, in the history of North America, there are two events uh, historically they call the First and Second Great Awakening. And during those times, you would have mass evangelism in public. People, if you ever go into Savannah, Whitfield, if, uh, Whitfield Avenue is named after George Whitfield. You may or may not know that. George Whitfield, famous preacher, preached in cemeteries. They threw cats at him, dead cats at him, as a way of telling him to shut up open-air preacher who would preach to like 10,000 people in a cemetery or in a public gathering. And, and incredible movements of God have happened in North America in our past. Even in the 70s, some of us can remember incredible movements of God. And it seems like what's happening with John the Baptist is, is, has some similarities. There's religious fervor. There's hellfire brimstone preaching. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees come out to John to be baptized, here's what he says to him. if you remember. Who warned you, you brood of vipers, to escape from the wrath that's to come? That's how he, he's, he was preaching and speaking to these people. So they, it's interesting that what this story, the actors in it, the, some of the people who come out to John 
are sent. They are a, a delegation. The Pharisees, who are the powerful religious party, their, their name means separate ones. They, they came into existence basically as an overcorrection to idolatry. Like the people we know, the history of Israel, they were sent into exile for hundreds of years because of their persistent disobedience of God. When they went into exile, they, it happened in phases. The people go into Assyrian captivity and then Babylonian captivity. While they're in Babylon, we remember God raises up prophets like Daniel and they predict that Messiah will come, God's going to restore his people, and eventually that happens. But in, in where they are currently is that you have the Pharisees who they overcorrect. They run far beyond where uh, they should have in their religious affections so that they become legalists and they become unhelpful impediments to actual helpful spirituality. They go too far, so much so that, like we'll see, they eventually censor and kill Jesus. That's who these people are. But they send out to John the Baptist a delegation. They don't go themselves. They send others out. They're lackeys, kind of. And they they say, who are you? That's the essence of this message. They want to know, who are you? So as we look at the passage, what we this is what I thought about is that we, you see the difference really between spiritual, like religious curiosity and spiritual commitment. And it's important that we are able to distinguish between those things ourselves because they are religiously curious, but they're not spiritually committed. And what we want in ourself is spiritual commitment. Not just to be curious, but to be all in. And so when they come to ask John, who are you? Well, the first idea I see in the passage is that they're, they're thinking about uh, what's happening in their age, but not in a helpful way. Spiritual commitment clarifies our identity. So that, this is the question they ask, who are you? Do they not know who John the Baptist is? I mean, it would, it would be like you pick a celebrity, Taylor Swift, okay, I only know a little bit about her because she's apparently dating Travis Kelsey, apparently. Do I have that right? I think I do, yeah. So it would be like being in North America and being like, who is Taylor Swift? I have no idea. Of course they know who John the Baptist is, right? They know who he is. How could they not know the lore? If any, If nothing else, they knew the story that Zacharias, Zacharias is a fellow priest. These people that are going out are Levites and priests. I'm, I, it's hard for me to think they didn't. Maybe if they if they didn't, it was because of the age at which uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist. But they had to know who he was. I don't think they're asking about his lineage or his family, which would have been well known to them. I think what they're actually asking is, what are you doing out here? What's your relationship to our order? Are you going to upset our apple cart? Or did you come here to be disruptive? And of course the answer is yes, he came out there to be disruptive. That's exactly why he's there. He came to straighten out and prepare the people for what they needed. And I think when we look at, at John the Baptist, we can see that he knew how he related to God's order because he answers them. They ask him three people that they're like, are you this person? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not. That's interesting because Jesus says he is Elijah. We're all the time talking about in Bible study, keeping things in tension. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says he is Elijah. Interesting. I think what John is, the Baptist is saying is, no, I'm not John, I'm not Elijah reincarnated. I'm not a second appearance of him. My parents are Zacharias and Elizabeth. I am John. That's who he is. 
But when Jesus says he is Elijah, he's talking about the scripture in Malachi 4.5 that says the forerunner is going to come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah, think about who Elijah is in the Old Testament. He preaches a, a powerful, challenging message to a people who are bent on idolatry. And so in the same way, John comes and he preaches repentance. Turn away from your your uh, sinfulness and turn away from your rebellion. So in that sense, when Jesus says he very he is Elijah, he is the forerunner, that's what they mean. They're not disagreeing. Jesus is saying Elijah, uh, the promise that the prophet that would precede Messiah, the forerunner, he's, he's embodied in the way that John the Baptist preached and prepared. And, and, and so John the Baptist, though, says, like, I know my identity. They say, are you Elijah? No, I'm not a Elijah. I'm John the Baptist. Are you the prophet? Well, this is referring to... Uh, Moses. Moses said that, that God was going to send a prophet who the people would listen to and everything. So everybody expected the Messiah and the prophet. They're basically the same idea. That there's a prophet who's going to come and you're going to listen to him and everything. He's like, are you who Moses was talking about? That's what they're asking. And he, he says, no, I'm not. Are you Messiah? No, I'm not Messiah. Well, it's important to know our identity, and he does know his identity. He knows his place, and he knows his role. And it's interesting, sometimes we read about people in the Bible like John the Baptist, and we forget that even though he appears heroic, he does, right? When you read about John, everything I don't read a negative thing that's said about him until he's imprisoned, and then it's understandable. But he, he's, he appears heroic, but he's not the hero in this story. And he's aware of that because he has the same nature as every other human, even though he's a great prophet. He realizes, I'm not the Messiah. He has a, an awareness that everybody needs. I always like, um, Anne Lamott says, asked this, what's the difference between you and God? I've probably said this here before. What's the difference between you and God? God never thinks he's you. That's the difference. Sometimes we get confused on that point. Well, John's not confused about his identity. But sometimes we get confused. And we think that we are adequate for everything that we need. We're sufficient. I've got this. I don't need God. Well, no, the truth is all of us do. I read a book, um, I read most of it by this guy, David Zoll. He uses the word enoughness to describe what people are looking for. And he says the way that modern people tend to find righteousness, because everybody is trying to figure out, do I have what it takes, am I enough? He says is through career, children, through our children. You know, is raising a family... A worthy thing, of course. Yeah, we want to do our best at it. We want to invest in people. It's not where your ultimate significance is. He's is having a vocation, education, are all those things important? Of course they are. You know, everybody should excel and do our best. And the are, are they ultimate? Is it where your significance is? No, it's not. If it is, you're you're going to end up with a huge disappointment. Because none of those realities are intended to be what life is centered in. And so when John thinks about his identity, he says, I'm lacking like everybody else. At least I think that's what's underneath what he says. I'm not the Christ. I recognize that I have a need. And all of us do. And it's righteousness. And the thing that the Bible says about Jesus is that he that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the who knew no sin? Well, the only human being that was virgin born, the only one about who everybody that knew him testified and said, he is sinless. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he, everybody that knew Jesus testified about him. Here is a sinless human. And he became righteousness for us. He 
took our place. He, the Bible talks about righteousness as a gift that comes. That's what the Advent season is about, is God bringing to us an incredible gift in, in uh, through Jesus, the him applying to our account by faith where we are deficient and everybody is deficient. Something's wrong with the world. We say this over and over again. You know, we, we look at the world around us and, and we realize it's a broken place, messed up, fallen. Fallen, that's the what the Bible says about it. It's It's fallen. And I always say, you know, then if we, you know, we see that, but if you bring it in closer, what about your family? Is there any brokenness, addiction? You know, of course there is. But then if we bring it in even closer and we look at ourselves, we, we realize, all us honest people, that we also are fallen, that, that we miss the mark. The Bible pictures sin is like drawing back and shooting at a target, but we keep missing the mark, our, and, and God, because of his incredible love for us, came to us in Jesus. So J- John the Baptist recognizes who he is, that he had a specific time to come. He's the, the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, that he's the forerunner, and he knows how God has shaped him for that, that period of time. He knows who he's not. He knows he's not enough. He's not the Messiah. And he, he um, but their question is, like, what are you doing here? And he, he's, he, he has absolutely come to upset the status quo. Because when you compare these two groups, and that's what I think this passage exists for. I think it exists to show us that there's this group of out, outsiders who will never become insiders because of their suspicion about Jesus and because of their predisposition to religion. That's what they have. They have a bad substitute for a relationship to Jesus. They have religion. And religion kills. And you see that over and over again. That It's, it's lacking. And so they come to ask, to begin with in the first century, Religion in the Jewish world, it was precarious. They existed in a relationship to Rome. You remember that the Romans were the world power and that they they had a local representative named Pontius Pilate that was the local governor. They had to get along with this guy. They had Jesus, we know, was not the only person crucified in the first century. That you the the peace of Rome was exerted through public crucifixion. The, the way that they kept peace in the world was through the enforcement of violent death and the public examples that were being made that if you do not fall into line with us legally, this could happen to you. So when the Jewish officials are trying to understand who John is, one of the, the questions that they have is, are you going to cause us problems with the Romans? That's what they're thinking. And, of course, that uh, everything Jesus did was going to cause problems with everybody all the time. And John is not there for himself. He is there to point us to Jesus. He's a witness. That's the first thing that the text says. So if you don't want your plans disturbed, you shouldn't come to Jesus. Because it's a, it's a given that he is Lord. If we come to Jesus, Romans 10, 9 and 10 say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So Over and over again, we see this. The idea that the scripture says is, how do you become a follower of Jesus? Through the profession, Jesus is Lord. And nobody can really say, I'm a follower of Jesus, if we have not submitted ourselves to the reality that he's the Lord. He's the master. He, He is the one to whom we recognize, this is creator God come to us to give himself for us, and the only sane thing to do, given that that is the trajectory of history and where everything is headed, is to say yes to him 
and to love him and serve him and worship him. So we, this is the dynamic in there. And we think about their religion, the fact that it was like, we're going to send these guys out, this delegation, they're going to find out who John the Baptist is, whether or not he's going to cause some sort of disturbance for us. And they had a way of relating to God that was rigid, inflexible, mindless adherence at some point. Uh, they, they did things by rote, R-O-T-E. In, in other words, it it wasn't it didn't get to the heart, and if it does, if our faith doesn't get to the heart, it's external, it it's lacking. And you remember in Scripture, Jesus says, when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, you remember how he answered. He said, "To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength." You know, so we think about what does that mean? How do we do that? To love him with all our passion. That's the heart. Passion. That, that word itself is uh, instructive, right? To love him with my mind, my intellect. In other words, I can't follow a bunch of religious rules by road and do what Jesus is saying I'm supposed to do. I have to f- love him with my mind. It means that Jesus is saying this is what a human really is. What a human really is is a person who's been created with an intellectual acumen. The ability to think and reason. And, and, of course, you wouldn't want to follow a faith that's not reasonable anyway. But Jesus says, if you follow me, it's going to be that you have to engage with your mind, with all your heart, your passion, your mind, your intellect, your will, your being. And when we think about what he's saying, your soul, follow me with all your soul, your being, your strength, what is that? Well, it's my energy. We, we talked about this in Sunday school. My priorities. My priorities. How am I deciding? If I'm following him with my strength, it's like I've got a physical life too. And I have to direct that physical life into obedience. So all of this requires prayer and attentiveness and obedience. And when John thinks about who he is, he gives an answer to them that should challenge them but us too. And secondly, in the passage, spiritual commitment clarifies our calling. It's like, who are you? That's a good question for us too, isn't it? Who are you? What are you doing? What's your life mean? Where's your significance? What What is it uh, that God is doing in you? So John the baptizer says, here's who I am. I am the voice of one calling, crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He says that when he thinks about who he is, it's my identity. I'm not these things. I'm not Christ. I need Christ. But also his calling is I am preceding Christ. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So messengers are sent and they speak. And he, he he's calling out, shouting, declaring, Passionate, emphatic, urgent, that's all that's, when it talks about crying, cries, just, that's what how you would think about it. In the wild, I thought, you know, about that. It, at first it could strike you as like, okay, here's this guy, he's obscure. He's really not, though. He has a following. He, uh, people, he's wildly popular in his time. People do know who John the Baptist is, but he doesn't allow the popularity to define him. It's not, he, he recognizes this is not about me because he later on says he must increase, I must decrease like we talked about before. When John's disciples say, hey, Jesus is baptizing way more people than you now, he, he, they, it seems like maybe they're trying to stir up some ecclesiastical jealousy. We're going to make you jealous or maybe they felt jealous, probably, John's followers, because they've been used to. But John's like, I know who I am. I know what my calling is about. And my calling's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so he, he, he says he must increase and I must decrease. And he's like, I'm related to him in the same way that the best man is related to the guy getting married. The bridegroom relates to, to uh, the groom. That's what he says about himself. He says, like, I'm glad because my friend is the, is the uh, groom, the bridegroom. 
he's like, I'm just the best man. I'm happy for him because he's in the spotlight, and he, that's the way it should be. And we think about our identity and how the, the calling that God has on our life informs that. There's a, a minister named Derwin Gray who said, if Jesus loving you is not enough, the whole world adoring you will never be enough. I think about my identity. When I uh, see things appropriately, I realize, and, and I can have bad days. I, I'm so impatient. I don't know how everybody else is, but I'm really impatient. And so I get frustrated at times. It's like, and, and then sometimes I'll be reminded um, that your job is to plant seeds. That's my job. My job is to plant seeds. You know what I want to do? I want to go dig them up and see what's going on under there. Like, what's happening under there? Why is this taking so stinking long? But it's not helpful. It's not a helpful way to be because I can't give the increase. God does. You know, we plant, we water, God gives the increase. But if if I'm not careful, my significance, my calling can uh, override the idea of my identity. And my identity is, uh, I, I like this uh, verse of Scripture, well, let's look at what the rest of what Derwin Gray says. He says, look at all the troubles that accompany. He says, if Jesus loving you is not enough, the whole world adoring you will never be enough. Look at all the troubles that accompany fame. He says, look at the world of celebrity, people overdosing on drugs, miserable. Everybody adoring you isn't enough. You know who? what is enough? One person adoring you. That's what's enough. I like how the scripture expresses this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says there, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is such a beautiful, powerful truth, you know, the, the idea that, like sometimes, I, here's how I thought when, and before I became a follower of Jesus, there was a period where I thought, I'm going to become a better person. I'm going to get my act together. And then, and, but, you know, it just doesn't work. And, and what I came to realize is that this is the truth, that before I had a chance to get it together, before I was even born, before I could do a single religious thing, that Jesus had already died for me, that, that God's love for us, and that's my identity. That's the, the truth about me and truth about you is that God loved you so much that before you did a single good thing or a single bad thing, he had already made a provision for you to know him and to be in relationship with him. So spiritual commitment clarifies our calling. <clears throat> John the only time you see the scripture, him struggle is when he gets his eyes off Jesus, when he forgets this truth. He's imprisoned, right? He's locked up and uh, because he insults Herod, or he corrects him, and Herod doesn't want to be corrected. And while he's in prison, he sends some representatives to Jesus to, to ask Jesus, who are you, <laughs> Right? Who are you? Not not in so many words, but he says, are you the one we're looking for? We should be, should we be looking for? He's the same person who in the wilderness said, um, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then later on while he's in prison, uh, uh, waiting beheading, because that's what happened when, when he was in prison. We, if you read the Gospels, John the Baptist is beheaded. But while he's there, he uh, begins to doubt. I don't know. I've got a bunch of cousins. If anybody told me my cousin was the Messiah, it might give me pause. But here's what Jesus said. The blind, go tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, he says, hey, John, all the things attending the presence of the Messiah are true in my life right now. The things that the prophet said would happen when Messiah came, I'm doing them. That's what he says to him. But we, we have this challenge of constantly seeing our significance in 
Jesus, and it is tied up in our calling. And when I mean calling, I mean we do have a vocation. After our identity and our coming to Christ, there's also the serving Christ and living a life for him and the way that 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 looks. But the scripture shows us too that John uh, the Baptist story and how it fits into Advent shows us the spiritual commitment centers on Christ. The Pharisees in this story, in verse 24, it talks about them and it says that they were uh, these who were sent were from the Pharisees and I've described them already and and I'm, I'm sure that reading the scripture you know but um they the uh, their identity is self-righteousness religious snobbery that we're better than others the uh they were incapable of seeing their own need you remember what Jesus calls them he says they're blind guides he says, don't listen to them. They're blind guides. If you follow them, you'll both end up in the ditch. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees to his followers and people who were listening in, in public. <clears throat> they, as we said, they're religious. They're, but there's the problem with religion as opposed to a relationship with Christ where the Spirit of God animates us and gives life to us. The problem with religion is that it tends to miss the, Jesus says you miss the important points of justice and mercy. In in other words, they followed a bunch of rules, but there was no tenderness or kindness toward other humans who they would deem less worthy. So they had the inability to see themselves appropriately and consequently because they couldn't see themselves the right way, they couldn't see anybody else the right way either. No compassion, no empathy, inability to identify with the common plight of everybody, which is that's the boat we're in, you know, all of us. That's the boat you're in. We Again, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning that we can't point fingers what we should be pointing fingers toward is the common hope that we have in Jesus. That's our hope. And where I was uh, before was hopeless and now I'm not. And you can find the same hope that I found in Jesus. John's baptism called people to a new life. And we, you know, as I said in the beginning, there was no baptism in the Old Testament. But when John comes... His baptism is temporary. He baptizes people to repentance, but what he says to them is that the kingdom of God is drawing near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And he says, I'm here to make straight the way of the Lord. So he is the forerunner in that sense that he broadcasts to them there is good news. And so that's a separate kind of baptism. And then Jesus himself begins to baptize and his followers baptized. And for some of this, this is an important thing to think about. Baptism, uh, as it became one of the regular practices of the church and as it gathered for worship. And this passage explains baptism very well. All right, in Romans chapter 6. In fact, I like to read this passage before baptisms. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at the answer, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? So what baptism is really saying is I'm dying to my old uh, preference and way of life that omitted God and didn't think about him or give place to him. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? No, because repentant, a repentant life is the life of a Christ follower. And it says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So there, there is a coming to uh, uh, this recognition. It's, again, to me, every, everybody's experience may have some uh, distinctions. 
But I think we come to an intersection, and in that intersection, we, we are saying, I'm now committing to love the Lord with all my mind, soul, heart, strength. I realize that my sin has been separating me from God. I recognize that God sent the solution, the Messiah, to come and to forgive our sins and that his resurrection demonstrated powerfully that this salvation works because the Bible says that he was raised for our justification. The Bible uh, says it works, that Christ did for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so when John talks about who Jesus is, he is a worshiper. He ascribes uh, worship. That's the old English word. I don't have a lisp. That's the, how they said it back then. Worship. Why? Because he, he, the word worship means we ascribe to God the, the glory, the weight that is do him because of who he is. So he is worthy of our worship. And so Jesus knew that John, or John knew Jesus was the center of God's saving activity. That's who he saw his cousin as. So we, when we think about the this passage, I, I think about religious fervor. There are worse things that I could imagine than an increase in Religious fervor. I could imagine, you know, worse things. It would be awesome if we saw the kinds of movement of God. So that a hundred years from now, somebody was naming streets in our county after somebody that God pushed forward to help us to experience Him in a fresh way, anew, like a Whitfield or like the Wesleys, uh, who all had a presence in. Uh, this part of the world, in Savannah and South Carolina and, you know, up our eastern seaboard as the gospel was proclaimed in great movements of God. Religious fervor is okay. I think it would be awesome to if more people in the modern West were moved to think more deeply about the metaphysical underpinning of life. We see life as... Uh, the American dream. We see it as the nine to five, the grind that we're in, but we don't see that life means more than that. And when John came, it was obvious that life meant more than that. When Jesus came, God was breaking through to say, listen, the, the world that you're a part of has a deeper significance than probably you are assigning to it day by day. When Jesus, there's a story in the scripture where a narrative, Jesus interacts with these two brothers, and uh, the brother says, hey, um, tell my brother to give me the part of our estate that is rightfully mine. And Jesus says, who made me an arbiter over this kind of affair? But he says, I'll tell you this, take heed and beware of covetousness because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. He says, listen, you, you're living for realities that are not ultimate. And I'm not going to wade into that, but I will tell you this, those are the kind of things that can take you to perdition. That's how it puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that many people get wrapped up in ideas that take them away to destruction. So it's helpful to be aware of spiritual realities, but the problem is in the passage that we read these people are deeply aware of spiritual realities. But they, they just have a curiosity that is never going to take a lot of them to commitment. Now, some of them did come to commitment because as when we get back to Acts, we'll see that the priests, it says many of the priests were coming to faith. So some of these people listen, and, and it registers with them, and they obey Jesus, and they obey the gospel. But for all of us, there, we have to move beyond just a religious curiosity to a spiritual commitment. And so we obey the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what the word literally means. But the Bible also tells you you have to obey the gospel. The gospel is uh, uh, God's appeal to us that a person has to say yes to, has to respond to. And then we begin this life. And so for some of us today, the beginning place of that life or a public expression of it would be to say, you know, I need to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. It's a scriptural idea for me that I need to follow him in. And so 
I encourage you to talk to myself or others of the elders because it's exactly what we want to do is help you along this pathway so that we, we're going, okay, my identity now is that I belong to Jesus, the one who came for me, I'm saying yes to. And then you begin to work through, okay, well, what's my calling? How has God made me? You know, I I never uh, would have thought I would preach to people. I, my uh, One of my uh, girlfriends in high school, her mom nicknamed me Mumbles because, like, I couldn't carry on adult conversation with other human beings. So nothing was more surprising to me that, that God would put me, you know, in front of people to say anything. We just don't know, you know, but but God himself knows. And when we begin to follow him, he he will use our life. He'll use your life to help bless and grow the kingdom, and that's his goal. It's his not his goal, it's his purpose for for you and for me. But we can get tangled up in religious notions that keep us from coming to Christ. And so that's why these kinds of passages for us communicate a sort of a danger. There's a danger there that you might see the world in a, in a way that is religious but it's not spiritual committed that doesn't really understand Jesus and doesn't really experience transformation because of who he is I want to uh, lead us in prayer we're going to have a time of commitment now you know it's perfectly fine for you as an initial way of uh, responding to say today I want to begin to uh, follow through and I'm standing here exactly for that reason to help you if there's a decision that you need to make, a commitment that you need to make. It's not the only way you can do it, but it is a, a way. Or it may be that you want to come here and pray at this altar today. As we've talked about spiritual fervor as being okay, that uh, God made us human beings who have affections and who can respond to him out of our emotions as well. But uh, we're going to sing. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite you, if you would, please stand with me. And as we pray, if there's a need for you to respond, I encourage you to do that. God, we're grateful for the Bible and how it shows us these clear realities about a history that's your history. That, God, you entered the human life and that you came to a family. And in that family, you uh, had human experiences and you sympathize with us in our weaknesses, your word says, that, that you sympathize with us so that uh, you were tempted in the ways that we were yet without sin. And now we can come boldly to the throne of uh, grace and uh, to find mercy and help in our times of need. And so thank you for who you are. And I pray that it will become clear to us exactly who you are and how we are to respond. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.